really good to see you here today. Uh, really uh, glad to have all of you that are online as well. Uh, it's amazing what an extra hour of sleep will do for church attendance. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's actually a statistical fact across the board in the United States that one of the highest attended, attended Sundays of the year is this week in the fall, and one of the lowest attended Sundays of the year is when you spring forward in, in the spring. That's, that's an, actual, an actual fact, uh, but, but we're glad uh, that you're here. If you're a guest, if you're new, we want to welcome you and hope that you've been made to feel uh, comfortable and hope that you'll want to come back. We're in a sermon series called The Fight of Your Life. Uh, we're in, Eph in Ephesians chapter 6, and we're talking about spiritual warfare and uh, how to overcome the attacks of the enemy in our lives, and we're kind of transitioning forward in the, in the passage. Really, for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the, at the armor of God. And so, uh, you know, I want to start with kind of an analogy related to, to athletic equipment and it protecting us. So, uh, I was kind of thinking back over my life and uh, my attempts at playing sports, and I was thinking about the, the injuries uh, that, that I've had. Uh, at, at least the ones that I can remember, and you know, there's lots of strains, sprains, Scrapes, cuts, bruises, uh, that kind of thing. I remember a pair of blo broken glasses when I took a bad hop grounder uh, off my face when I was playing uh, second base. But uh, the actual injuries that I remember is apparently I've had a few hairline fractures in my nose that I didn't even know about until I saw an ENT one time, and he told me that they were there. I'm sure that's from basketball, probably from Rusty Arwood, elbowing me at <laughs> some, some point. Um, no, you would never do that, would you, Rusty? Um, and, um, you know, I... I've jammed my finger so many times, broke this finger uh, one time, pulled hamstring, uh, pulled calf muscle, slightly torn meniscus in my left knee that didn't require uh, surgery, uh, torn ACL in my right knee that did require surgery, you know, more sprained ankles than I can count. That, that, that's, that's what I remember. And uh, a lot of guys in this room could, you know, rattle off a list uh, like that. But in all honesty, most of those, other than the ACL, which required uh, surgery and several months of rehab and all that goes with that. Most of those were just annoyances. Uh, you know, I had to go to the ER with the broken finger, but most of it was just annoyances. But I remember one time where, I, you know, it, lot, that kind of stuff, you know, just can't do a whole lot necessarily to prevent, just happens sometimes. But, but I think about one time we're wearing protective equipment really took care of me. So the last game of the season... The last at bat of the season, I think it was my first year in Little League. It might have been my second year in Little League baseball. Um, I was facing a guy that, um, I mean, he was, he was a couple years older than I am, and he, he was one of these kids, you remember what I'm talking about? He was a big guy, he's a big guy now. He's a police officer in Morristown. Uh, but uh, you remember these kids when they were like 12, 13 years old, they're basically as big uh, then as they are as adults. And this is one of these kids. And I mean, he threw hard and a little league mound's only 45 feet away uh, from home plate. So he threw it and, and he beamed me. And if you don't know baseball terminology, that means I bat left-handed. He hit me right here about an inch above uh, my ear. I mean, just caught me flush, caught me solid. And so, uh, you know, I went down, uh, but because I was wearing a batting helmet, uh, I was able to get back up. It protected me with no long-term effects, we think. <laughs> <laughs> 
This may explain some things to some of you. I don't know. Do you know this story, Robin? This, this may answer some questions for you. But um, uh, I mean, you know, I mean, just think of what would have happened if I wasn't wearing that helmet. And in, in a sense, that's kind of what this passage is telling us. You know, it talks about Satan throwing fiery darts at us. And it's saying if we're going to be safe from those attacks, then we got to be wearing the right protective equipment. Now, it doesn't mean we're never going to get knocked down. But, uh, you know, when you're playing baseball and you get hit, your coach tells you that you got to get back in the batter's box as soon as you can so it doesn't get in your head, so you overcome that fear. And really, that's what the Bible tells us. You know, Proverbs, it talks about righteous man may fall seven times, but he rises again. So sometimes Satan may knock us down, but we got to get back up. And so we got to be wearing the right equipment. And the Bible calls that the armor of God. And so what I want to do, I want us to read this whole passage, and we're kind of going to review the outline quickly from the first message just to kind of lead into talking about these different pieces of the armor of God. And we're going to try to cover two a week over the next three weeks and then talk about prayer. And the two we're going to talk about today really go together anyway. The belt of truth, the sword of the spirit. It says the sword of the spirit is the word of God, and that's where uh, we get truth from. But it says here in Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places, talking about demons. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. So if this is an evil day, particularly uh, if, you, if you think that's true, and particularly if it's an evil day for you where you're facing a lot of attacks, you really need to hear this message and what it's saying. So once again, he, he repeats this four times in this passage. Stand. Sometimes the most spiritual thing we can do is just keep standing. When everything's hitting us, or maybe for some of you, the message is get back up and get going again today by the grace of Jesus Christ. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, which, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. So uh, just to, to review, and because and, I think that's gonna be a good way to lead us into actually talking about putting on the armor, to go back to the first week, Pastor Philip, uh, th this was the outline of the, the message that day. We're in a spiritual fight, number one. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Right? Number two, we're commanded to stand in the fight. So, what does that mean? Well, uh, let me read you a short quote by Clinton Arnold, this kind of a scholarly way to look at it, I guess. He's referring uh, to the word uh, therefore in, in verse 14. And he says, in effect, since there is powerful supernatural opposition to the church, 
And since God makes his superior power available to his people so they can resist, believers should stand. The imperative verb stand functions as a heading for the remainder of the passage. And so what he's saying is the way we stand is then by putting on these different pieces of armor. If we're not wearing each of these pieces of armor, there's a really good chance we're going to get knocked down because really Satan can only work in Christians because remember his authority over us is broken where we open the door to him. And so really the key to spiritual warfare, I think the key idea as we talk about putting on the armor of God over the next few weeks is we're trying to close the chinks in the armor. That's the key. I mean, you can hear all this crazy stuff about spiritual warfare and people talk about claiming cities and territorial demons and all kinds of stuff like that. Just close the chinks in your armor. Okay, that's a much better starting place. All right, and, and so Arnold goes on uh, to say, this is already the fourth occurrence of the verb stand in this context. The repetition of this verb strongly emphasizes the goal of the struggle. God not only makes it possible for believers to, to stand, but expects them to do so by, de, by depending on his divine resources. The verb in the context expresses both the defensive posture believers are to assume as they come under fierce assault by the powers of darkness and an offensive movement into the kingdom of the evil one. And we're going to talk about both sides of that today as we talk about the sword of the Spirit. Now, that's kind of a scholarly way to put it, and we put it in a real practical way. Here's an excerpt from a letter from a missionary in the New Guinea jungles. And he wrote this, Man, it's great to be in the thick of the fight to draw the old devil's heaviest guns, to have him at you with depression and discouragement, slander and disease. He doesn't waste time on a lukewarm bunch. You ever thought about that? If Satan's never hitting you, you might be uh, not opposing him enough. If, if you're never experiencing any opposition, it might be because you're traveling in the same direction as him. He hits good and hard when a fellow is hitting him. You can always measure the weight of your blow by the one you get back. When you're on your back with fever, and at your last out of strength, when some of your converts backslide, when you learn that your most promising inquirers are only fooling, when your mail gets held up and some don't bother to answer your letters, is that the time to put on mourning? No, sir. That's the time to pull out the stops and shout hallelujah. The old fellow's getting it in the neck and hitting back. Heaven is leaning over the battlements and watching. Will he stick with it? Glory to God. We're not going to run away. We're going to stand. And that's the kind of mindset that God wants us to have in this battle. But number three, we, we see here, the text is very clear, that we can only stand through God's strength. If we're trying to fight Satan in our own strength, we're actually playing into his hands. He would love for us to do that. He says, be strong in the Lord, the power of his might. Remember, we're fighting from victory, not for victory. We're standing in the power of the accomplishment of the finished work of the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the posture, the mindset, the conviction, the belief that we're to fight from. But then number four, if we're going to try to stand and, and fight in God's strength. Practically, how do we do that? And, and this is leading up to what we're going to talk about over the next several weeks. We stand in his strength by putting on the armor of God. 
So God has made his strength readily and easily available to us. He says, you can stand in my strength, but it's not automatic. You have to put on the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the shield of faith and so on and so forth. And so what we're going to talk about over the next few weeks is what those are and how we do that. And so uh, think think of it like this. Uh, Sometimes men will say to each other, I've said this to other men, had other men say this to me, when a guy is well-dressed on a certain day and um, maybe more dressed up than he normally is or maybe just more presentable than he usually is. You know, like you wouldn't say this to like Rusty Arwood because, you know, you wouldn't say this to Terry Ford because, you know, they, they, they always dress sharp. But other guys, you might say something like, your wife, she dressed you well today. You ever heard that before? Now, I've never said that to another guy and thought literally she tied his shoes, put his shirt on for him, so on and so forth. If that's ever happened, please don't tell me. I don't want to know. Uh, But what that means when one guy says that to another is something like, well, she bought you a nice outfit. She picked out some clothes, picked some clothes out of the closet and laid them out on the bed and you put on what she picked out for you. Or uh, she sent you back into the closet telling you that blue and brown don't go together. You need to change your clothes. Or you can't wear white socks with black shoes or uh, whatever the list of things may be. She, She put an outfit together for you that makes you look better than you normally look and you picked it up and and put it on. She provided it, you put it on. That's kind of the picture here. God has provided this armor. He's given us his strength, but we have to pick it up and put it on. And so that's what he's called to do, called us to do. That's part of living uh, the, the Christian life. So, you know, the big idea here that's really going to be the same for the next few weeks is we're equipped to fight our spiritual enemy by putting on the armor of God. We're equipped to fight our spiritual enemy by putting on the armor of God. So, how do we put this on? What do we put on? How do we equip ourselves? Well, let's look at a couple of these pieces today. Number one, we equip ourselves for the fight by putting on the truth. It's not coincidental that this is where uh, Paul starts. I mean, if we go back a couple weeks and we talk about Satan's strategy, Satan's a deceiver. His weapon is lies. His target is our mind. How do we counteract this? How do we overcome this? We do this by putting on the truth of the word of God. So it's no accident that this is where he starts. We equip ourselves for the fight by putting on truth. Uh, There's a radio show on NPR called This American Life. And uh, one time a few years ago, they did an episode titled The Devil Inside Me. And uh, the show asked various people if they ever felt like they were under the spell of a, quote, inner voice that held them bondage to unwanted thoughts. And the host of the show said this, the direct quote, it was like people have been waiting all their lives for somebody to ask them this question. 
And here are some of the responses that were given. A man said, I certainly know the voice you're talking about. Another man said, that voice is irresistible always. A woman said, totally out of control. It's got this life of its own, and I can't tame it anymore. You ever feel that way about your thoughts? Do you ever have thoughts that you just, just you don't want to be thinking? They just plague you. They won't go away. You're just struggling with them. Uh, another woman said, actually, I have a name for the voice. I call it Stan. I don't know what it is about Stan, but she said, Stan is the guy who tells me to have the extra glass of wine. Stan is the guy who tells me to smoke. A man said, I remember somehow realizing just how finely calibrated the voice was to every nuance, every part of my feelings, including the feeling that I didn't want to smoke cigarettes. And it's like, you might as well have another cigarette because this is it. A woman who just got engaged hears her voice say, you better try your hardest to make sure he doesn't take the ring away because he's going to find out the, the truth about you and how sorry you are. So you better distract him with a really thin body. At the end of the episode, the host asks someone, do you feel like the voice is winning? And one replies right now, yeah, I think I'm in some serious trouble, to be honest. Listen, I think we can relate with that because Satan is a deceiver. He's a liar. He lies to us about God. He tells us that God's not good, that God's forgotten about us. He tells us that we're no good, that there's something wrong with us. That's why we're going through all these trials and difficulties, that God's abandoned us. We're too sinful to be forgiven. We're too uh, you know, bad that uh, you know, God could never bless us. God could never accept us. You know, he tells us lies about our identity and tries to convince us that we're something or somebody or we're not something, that God's word makes it very clear that we are or, or, or that we aren't. Uh, just lie after lie. You see, if we don't replace this voice with the voice of truth, we're going to be in some serious trouble in our lives. Warren Wiersbe has said that unless we are motivated and directed by truth, we will be defeated by the enemy. If we permit any deception to enter our lives, we have weakened our position and cannot fight the battle victoriously. You see, a lot of times we think of spiritual warfare as a power encounter when it's really a truth encounter. I mean, when Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness, what did he do? He quoted scripture to him. Three times from the book of Deuteronomy, believe it or not. I mean, he, he quoted scripture. It's not a power encounter. It's a truth encounter. So when we're talking about putting on the belt of truth, what does that mean? Well, let me read just a, a few sentences to you from a book called Spiritual Warfare, A Balanced and Biblical Perspective. And uh, the, the writers, a couple of pastors say, the image here is of a belt. And the apostle tells us that we're to have it girded or fastened upon us, which means to wrap it around us as preparation for activity. The idea literally means to bind it to ourselves, Several writers note that Paul derives this picture from the soldier's custom of shortening the long flowing tunics they wore as their primary clothing and outer garment. Ordinarily, the tunic draped loosely over the soldier's body. However, when the soldier was preparing for battle, he would tuck the ends of his robe into his belt. He did this for freedom of movement so that his lengthy robe would not hinder his progress when he met the enemy. With the belt tightly, uh, tied tightly around his waist and his garment tucked in, granting him free motion of his legs, the warrior was ready for combat. 
The belt was also where his sword was sheathed, which gave the warrior central support for his entire body. And so what's the symbolism mean though? The truth is our first line of spiritual defense against the devil. Truth is an indispensable piece of armor. It functions spiritually as the believer's belt. As the soldier's belt was placed at the center of his body, so truth must be central in our lives, encompassing all that we do if we are to be prepared for the fight with Satan, our crafty foe. And so when we talk about wearing this belt of truth, well, I mean, what, what would that mean then? Well, it, it has to be at least a couple of things. Number one, wearing the belt of truth means knowing the truth. Wearing the belt of truth means knowing the truth. So what are we talking about when we actually talk about truth? This is my favorite definition of, uh, of truth. It comes from Chuck Colson. Truth is ultimate reality. Truth is that which is really real. But do you understand to even say something like that is one of the most countercultural things that we could say in our society today? And, and I believe personally that this particular issue is at the root of every other issue that we have in our society today. Uh, last year, we were out uh, you know, with Legacy, the, the True Life Evangelism team, doing some door-to-door -door in, in, in Dandridge. And I was on a team with Susan Miles. One of the first houses we came to, uh, we were doing like a religious opinion survey and a man answered the door. And, and he said within the first minute, I think, of the conversation that we're atheists. But we went on to have a, a great 45-minute conversation, just completely cordial, back and forth. I mean, really, I mean, I got to share the gospel, use a lot of apologetics, that kind of thing. He seemed to be very interested. But um, a ways into the conversation, his wife popped her head out the door, or sort of. She was kind of, she apparently coloring her hair, but she had been listening. And I guess she was a little bit more of a militant atheist than him. And so she jumped in the conversation, and it really became more of a debate at that point. But at, at one point, as we were discussing this particular issue, she said that there is no such thing as reality. Everything is perspective which is so out there, it's hard to debate with, but I give her credit because if you're going to take this position, that is the logical outcome of it and is the position that you ought to take. But I mean, where does that leave you in life is there's no such thing as actual reality. Where does it leave you as a society? Probably about somewhere like we are right now. If you define your own reality by your own perception, then you can pretty much do or be anything that you want to be, but we know that's a lie. Because as John Mark Homer says, reality is what we bump into when things go wrong. There is a reality. Al Mohler says this about truth. Truth is universal, absolute, unchanging, knowable, and capable of being conveyed by language. That's what truth is. If something's true, it's true for all people in all places and all times under all circumstances. That's what it means for something to be true. Why is it this way? Well, the Bible tells us that truth has three elements to it. Truth is personal because God is truth. Um, 
You know, the Father is called truth. Jesus is called truth. You know, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The Spirit is called the Spirit of truth. Uh, Chuck Colson puts it this way. Uh, th- this assertion is the assertion that in the beginning was God, that he, w- I- that he is responsible for the universe, for our very existence, and that he has created the order and structure in which life exists. Everything we know, all meaning flows from him. Listen, if there is a God, there is reality, there is truth, and we can't create our own reality. And that's one of Satan's biggest lies right now. Truth is propositional, meaning that the Bible is truth. Ephesians 1.13, Paul wrote, In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Jesus said, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. But then truth is not just um, personal, it's not just propositional, but it's practical. Because Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you're my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. You see, because truth is reality, when we walk according to truth, we're living in the reality that God designed us to live in. And so life is going to work in the way that he designed it to work, which is going to lead to freedom. But if we're not walking in truth, we're working against the very design of our creator and life is not going to work and it's going to lead to bondage. And that's exactly why some of you are where you are in your life, because you're not living according to truth. And whether or not you say there's truth or reality or not, every time some Something goes wrong, you're bumping into reality, you are bumping into the truth, and God will not change his truth, even for, quote, 21, 21st century enlightened Americans. Truth is the foundation of everything. So we're going to have to know the truth, but we're also going to have to, wearing the belt of truth means living out the truth. Because there's a lot of Christians, professing Christians, that have a ton of biblical head knowledge. But their lives are all messed up because they're not actually living out that truth. John wrote in what we call 3 John, for I rejoice greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth the truth. Now, you should know this from the book of Ephesians. Somebody better get this right. I'm going to have to go back and preach the whole thing again. Um, So when when the Bible uses the word walk in the New Testament in a symbolic, metaphorical way, what's it refer to? It's It's our lifestyle. It's how we live our lives. (laughs) Yeah, I had to go back and preach it again. Um, It's our lifestyle. It's how we live our lives. Are we living according to the truth? Do we think according to the truth? Do we act according to the truth? Do we speak according to the truth? That's where freedom comes from. But this truth, this propositional truth comes from the word of God. Listen to me. I became a Christian when I was nine years old. And... um, But I started growing as a Christian when I was about 13. And the way that I started growing as a Christian, this this is very complex, okay? So I hope you can follow. Listen real closely, okay, for the next few seconds, okay? It's very complex, very deep. You know how I started growing as a Christian? I started reading the Bible every day. Now, when I made a profession of faith when I was nine, 
you know, it was, I mean, practically, obviously, it transformed my life. It transformed my eternity. The Holy Spirit came to live inside of me. But I'm just talking practically. I mean, I wasn't an axe murderer, right? I mean, functionally, I don't know how much difference you could really tell in me. My temper improved. That, that was probably the most obvious fruit of salvation early on. But, um, I mean, you know what functionally began to transform my life? when I started reading the Bible. You know, it was about a year after that that my parents split up. And um, my younger brother never recovered from it. And there's some different reasons for that. But probably the biggest reason that I'm here today doing what I'm doing and he's not here anymore I started reading the Bible. That's how powerful and life-transforming that truth is. Listen to me, teenagers, you hear lies all the time from all around you, from inside of you. You hear these voices. You think we're gonna overcome that? Get in the truth of the word of God. Listen, you, uh, you know, say, I don't know how to do that. Listen, one of the things you're blessed with is some wonderful, godly, caring uh, youth minister in Jacob, a bunch of youth leaders. Go to them. Talk to them. A lot of you have godly parents that are in God's word. Go to them. You got to fight the battle now. Listen, there's things that can happen in your life now that can mess you up for a lot of years to come. This whole teenage thing is a really a lie from the devil. It's a marketing tool. It wasn't even a thing until the 20th century. You're making decisions now that can affect the rest of your life. You need to take it seriously. Say he's a liar. You gotta have truth. And so then to go along with that is we equip ourselves for the fight by putting on the word of God, by taking up what he calls the sword of the spirit. And this is how we get truth in our lives because the Bible is propositional truth. And it reveals to us who God is and it reveals to us how life is supposed to work. This is how we can live in the design of the reality of the truth that God created us to. So practically, how do we do this? Well, I'm just gonna give you a very simple analogy. Um, so you see a hand here on the screen. If you think of a hand grasping a sword because it talks about the sword of the spirit, how do we take in the word of God? Well, just start at the palm by reading it, by reading it. You know, we actually have to read the Bible to know what it says, to, uh, you know, find a Bible reading plan on version and start with that. Talk to another Christian, or you can do something simple, just like, I like to start it with a chapter a day. I mean, you can start with a chapter a day in Proverbs and maybe John, and some of it's just building a habit. It's just building a habit. Because, remember, goals aren't the key. You have the goal of being the greatest Christian in the world. The key to success is always habits. What are we doing day in and day out? I mean, just start reading the Bible five minutes a day, praying five minutes a day, and go from there. Just something simple, all right? Or, you know, listening to it. You may say, I'm not a reader. Listen to the Bible on audio, if that's you. I mean, one of our elders, Rusty Arwood, we joke about this sometimes. Rusty's not a reader, right? He doesn't like to read. Uh, doesn't mean he's not smart. I mean, he's a college graduate. 
I mean, he majored in basketball, but he, he has a college degree. Uh, I mean, he was smart enough to marry Lori, who has a PhD, and, and you know, but he just doesn't like to read. So most days on his way to work, he works in Knoxville. He listens to the Bible on audio or, or, or listen to sermons as a supplement to it. You know, when I'm working out or maybe doing stuff around the house, mowing the yard or whatever, I'm usually listening to sermons or podcasts or, or, or that kind of thing. It puts truth in you. Meditate on it, which means, you know, just to think about it. Chew it around in your mind. Uh, chew around, chew on how it applies to you and, and, and your life. Um, you know, memorize it so, you know, it's there uh, when we need it. You know, actually study it. Dig into it and study it. I mean, if you want to learn how to do that, we've got a seminar that we did here how to study the Bible for yourself on our Trained Up app. Contact Andy at the church office. She can help you get into that if you don't know how to get into that. You ever thought about this before? Singing it. Colossians 3.16 talks about uh, admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord. Music's powerful. Listen, listen to music with truth in it because there's just something about music that just sticks in our minds, right? I say that. Some of you are having songs pop in your head right now because that's how it works. You know, th that's why at True Life, worship is so important. Worship's part of our warfare. It's why, you know, when we were interviewing Jeremiah, one of the things that we talked to him about was how he picks songs because we believe if we're going to sing a song, it should be biblically true, and a lot of our focus should be on singing the gospel. We, we sing the truth. But then, ultimately, and, you know, if you'll think of this, actually, go to the next slide, just actually grasping the sword, then once we take it in, to actually use it. Because the Bible tells us to not be hearers of the word only, but to be doers of the word. Use it in resisting temptation, in witnessing, in decision-making, in, 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 to comfort us, to, you know, just to set the direction for our lives. You got to take it in. I mean, Billy Graham used to talk about Christians who sit, soak, and sour. And he used the analogy of a sponge. And you think about a sponge, you know, a sponge can only absorb so much and then once it gets saturated, unless you wring it out, it's going to just sour eventually. So he talked about, uh, you know, the way we do this is we take in truth through the scripture, then we wring it out through obedience, and then we're ready to take in more truth. God's probably not going to teach us more truth until we're doing something with the truth that we already know. Use it. Put it into practice. And so how do we use this weapon of the sword of the spirit? Well, we use this weapon defensively to resist Satan's attacks, Matthew chapter four. You know, I referenced this earlier, but when, when Jesus was tempted, when Satan was questioning his identity, Jesus quoted scripture to him. He didn't have a conversation with him like Eve did in the garden. He didn't debate with him. He quoted scripture to him. There's something to learn there. But I wanna move on to the other side of this because most of what we're talking about here is defensive but I want to talk about the offensive side of this in the last few minutes I have because, frankly, I'm sick of church, the church playing defense. I think it's time for us to play some offense. The Bible tells us in Romans 1, 16, Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of, uh, of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God and salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Do you believe that? I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to everyone who believes. God promised in the Old Testament that his word would not return void. Think about Matthew 16. This is 
actually the first time that the word church is used in the Bible. It comes from the lips of the Lord Jesus. And there's an important um, guide in Bible interpretation, the law of first mentioned. When something's first mentioned in scripture, it's, it, it's crucial because it guides the meaning and the use of it the rest of the time. So in Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13, I'm just gonna kind of paraphrase the, the first part of this. But uh, you know, they were in Caesarea Philippi. They weren't with the, in Jerusalem, weren't amongst a bunch of Jews. This would have been a pagan area. This, uh, this would have been kind of like being in Babylon, maybe kind of like being in, modern day America. And Jesus said, well, who do people say that I am? They're like, some John the Baptist, some Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Then who do you say that I am? And, you know, Peter steps up and says the right thing. This time, you know, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And notice what Jesus said to him. He said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And also I say to you that you're Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, let me ask you a question. You know, we think about Satan being on the attack and, you know, walking about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, and that's true. But are gates an offensive weapon or a defensive weapon? They're defensive. Which means that as Christians, as the church... Instead of running from the gates of hell, we ought to be storming the gates of hell. And how do we do that? Well, Jesus said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And so what, what's he saying there? The keys of the kingdom of heaven, if, if you do the Bible study on this, and uh, you know, I don't have time to walk you through it, uh, you can check it out for yourself. But basically, the keys of the kingdom of heaven are a symbol of the word of God. Uh, they're a symbol of truth. And, and basically what Jesus is saying here, whenever we speak God's word, we're agreeing with heaven. And if we're agreeing with heaven, we know it's gonna come about. That, that's what he's saying. And so basically what he's saying here, our offensive weapon is the sword of the spirit, is the truth of the word of God. And then it's time for the church, instead of backtracking, instead of cowering, instead of running, to stand up and step up with the truth of the gospel, with the power and the authority of the word of God to go on the offensive against the gates of hell in, in, in making disciples of Jesus Christ. But the power that we have to do that is in scripture. Sometimes people say things about us not talking about uh, you know, politics at True Life, which is one of my basic convictions. Doesn't mean I don't think it's important. Doesn't mean that as individuals, I don't think we should be involved in that process. I just think that's downstream and it's not really primarily the church's job. Our job is to preach the gospel. Our job is to make disciples. And if we're making disciples, people will know biblically what they need to do when it comes to politics. It's missing the point of the main calling. Let me give you, let me give you this illustration, a couple of illustrations. One goes back in history, one's a little more current. So what holiday was yesterday? Uh, there you go. It was Reformation Day. When you're a historical, theological nerd like me, it was Reformation Day. Not Halloween. I know it's Halloween, but it's Reformation Day. Now, I, I would say, I mean, I'm no history expert. It is, I mean, I do have a degree in it, but I, I would say this without fear of a whole lot of contradiction, that 
Western civilization from the 1500s to at some point in the, in the 1900s was built on things that happened through the Protestant Reformation. I mean, some of the things that came out of the Protestant Reformation, if you think about spiritually, the fact that we're justified by faith alone, the sufficiency of the word of God, the fact that the image of God is in every person, the priesthood of all believers. But even beyond just the spiritual side of things, you've got the doctrine of vocation, you've got the Protestant work ethic, you have capitalism, you have education, you have Bible translation, you have the rise of modern science, you have the idea of limited government, which planted the seeds for democracy, the idea of the separation of church and state, which our Anabaptist forefathers uh, trumpeted and actually gave their lives for when the Catholics and the Protestants all hated them. I mean, it literally changed the world, not just religiously, but societally. Well, how did that come about? Well, here's what Martin Luther says about it. And let me just give a caveat to this. Uh, I've preached about this before. You can go back and find it in Ephesians. We've got a lot of new people, so I'm going to say this. At, at True Life, our elders' position when it comes to alcohol is the, uh, that getting drunk is a sin, the Bible doesn't absolutely forbid it in cases of moderation. Uh, that's more of a personal conviction. My personal conviction is that it's wiser not to drink at all. But so, just so you'll know that as I read this from Martin Luther. Martin Luther said this, and it, talking about God's word. In short, I will preach it, teach it, write it, but I will constrain no one by force, um, for faith must come freely without compulsion. Take myself as an example. I opposed indulgences and all the papists, the popes, but never with force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, uh, the word of God so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. Had I desired to foment trouble, to trouble, I could have brought great bloodshed upon Germany. Instead, I could have started such a game that, that the emperor would not even have been safe. But what would it have been? Mere fool's play. I did nothing. I let the word do its work. And what was the work of the word? It literally changed the world for hundreds of years after that. Do we have confidence in the authority, the sufficiency, the power of the word of God. You know what? God's word is still changing people's lives today. You know, something in, you know, I hope this encourages you, it encouraged me. You know, Mark Sonnenmeyer Jr., a lot of you know Mark. Uh, he's at, uh, in his last year at Clear Creek uh, Bible College. But uh, a church that he's been involved at up there uh, just in last, sometime in October, called him to be on staff at their church. Now, that's the kind of thing you ought to celebrate in church when a kid who grows up in your church is now in his first uh, ministry uh, position uh, in a church. You especially ought to celebrate it when his mom and dad uh, were a couple of the first people who got saved and baptized when you planted the church. And when his mom, when that happened, was an agnostic, what did this? The gospel, the word of God. And now, uh, you know, his brother just got married, married a godly young lady 
there's going to be a line of change down through the years in that family. Why? It's the power of the word of God. It's not, we don't need to retreat. We, if we believe we have the truth, we ought not to be offensive, but we ought to go on the offensive. Right? We can be, we're way too offensive because we get all up in the air about the wrong things. And, and we're so, uh, you know, when you try so hard to convince people that you fight with them, I think that shows that maybe you don't really have a whole lot of confidence in the power of the word of God itself. Listen, we can share the truth and trust God to do with it what he's going to do with it. So let me close with this. You know, as, as we're trying to navigate this whole COVID thing as a church, and, and it's hard. I mean, our elders have, you know, agonized over decisions that, that we've made. And, um, you know, it, it's kind of almost weird at times. Like, uh, you know, there's very few empty seats in here today. And normally, you like, that's exciting. And during COVID, it's exciting. But then you're also like, I hope this is a good thing. You know, I, I hope there's no issues from this. But, you know, as we've tried to figure this out, you know, one of the things that we've kept in mind is that uh, COVID's a problem. It's a real thing. But there's a lot of other big problems in the world. And, um, you know, I, I think that uh, it is true that the uh, cure can't be worse than the problem where it's not really a cure. And you can't forget about other things that are going on. And we can't forget about our calling as a church. Now, we need to do what we do in a way that keeps people safe. But, uh, you know, as their staff has been talking, we're trying to make plans for the end of this year and next year and that kind of thing. And we're wrestling, you know, with how do we do outreach? How do we serve the community? Because, you know, honestly, that's been my biggest concern through all this. I think God's blessed our church. I think there's a lot of, you know, great things that have happened that he's been very gracious to us. The area that's concerned me is the area of outreach and serving the community and that kind of thing. And it just seems like we don't have a lot of momentum there. We've talked that we need to push, you know, how do we do this with, uh, you know, everything that's going on. And I, I was praying about that one day uh, recently. And I felt like God's spirit spoke something to me. And, you know, I know that's always a subjective thing to say, and I don't want to put words in the mouth of God, but I believe this is from God, because how do you know if you feel like God's saying something to you, whether it's true or not? Does it line up with Scripture? And, and this lines up with Scripture. God just gave me this phrase. If not now, when? If not now, when? If the church isn't go, going to go on the offensive with the Word of God now, When? I mean, when we look at people getting sick and dying around us, when we look at the chaos and upheaval in our society, I mean, and who knows what that's going to be like on Wednesday. If we look at just the lies that are being promulgated and are just taking root in so many believers' hearts, if not now, when? Who's your one? Listen, you, you can be in the highest risk category staying at home, but you can still call people. You can still text people. You can still minister to people. 
Listen, there's people dying in the nursing homes around us. And one of the things we've done through this time is True Life's adopted a couple of those nursing homes and worked with other churches to get all, uh, to get all of the nursing homes, assisted living facilities in Jefferson Hamlin counties connected with some church. And what's a way you can minister right now? Is write cards of encouragement to people in, nursing, in, in, in our nursing homes. Share the gospel with them. Some of these people that are dying, do they know Christ? I mean, if you'd like to help with that, get in touch with, with Leanne Phillips. Who do you know? I mean, if you feel comfortable, if you're out and about and you're good with that, who can you invite to church? Who can you reach out to? There are some things we're gonna do to serve our community. We've already, we're already reaching out to uh, our community leaders about how we can serve the community during the holidays. If not now, when? If not now, when? And listen, if we don't, if we don't, we can't be crying about what our country's like a few years from now. Listen, I don't care which party you're in. You can blame it on the other, you can blame it on whatever, but we don't wrestle with politicians and we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness and the wicked places. And the church, if we have the truth, we need to be sharing the truth in a kind, loving, but bold way, going on the offensive, wielding the sword of the spirit, letting the, work do its, letting the word do its work changing people's lives and changing the world. We bow your head.